Alright, so before John started his Sunday school series on First Peter, just finished up, Dirk, before he went to the Pacific Northwest, took us on a, an eight-week tour, which he titled The Big Picture of the Psalms. Well, we had actually not discussed this, but around the time that I'd finished up my last Sunday school series, which, you know, give or take a year ago, that was on Jonah and Nahum, when I finished that up, I had actually decided that my next series was going to be on the Psalms of Ascent. And Dirk's series, just by the providence of God, he had decided to give us this introduction to the big picture of the Psalms, where he took us on this eight-week tour of that. And he showed us the intentionality in which the Psalms were arranged. And then, at the end of it, he gave us this, this nice little one-page summary of pretty much like everything that he had been teaching over the past eight weeks. See, I mean, he like every square inch of this page is filled with information here. There's actually a few of these left on that table out there if anyone wants one. But it's a really, really nice summary of everything that Dirk talked through in those, those eight weeks, highlighting all the, the major points and things that he brought up. And I think it'd actually be a, a good start to this particular series on the Psalms of Ascent to briefly review... So we get kind of a foundation about their placement, their Psalms of Ascent, their placement in the Psalter. Because they were obviously, if you were listening to Dirk series, they're not collected and placed there by accident. So we're just going to hit some of, the, some of the highlights of this sheet right here. First of all. So first of all, Psalms 1 and 2, they form the foundation for the rest of the Psalter, the rest of the 148 books, the 48 Psalms. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm that shows who the blessed man is and that we need a redeemer. You get that right out of the gate. Psalm 2 then shows that the blessing applies to us, but only if if we are united to the only fully blessed man, and that one fully blessed man is Jesus. So the blessings come to us only if we're united to Jesus. The five books of the Psalter correspond to the Torah or the Pentateuch in their content and their themes. Book 1, which is Psalms 1-41, through corresponds to Genesis. It's the covenantal book of the Psalter. It establishes the Messiah and His kingship. In Book 1, there are frequent references to Yahweh, especially as lawgiver and king. Enemies also make a lot of appearances in Book 1. The Psalms of Book 2, which are Psalms 42 through 72, correspond to Exodus. They display a longing for God and His victory and place an emphasis on missions in the nations and showing that the promises were never meant for only Israel, but anyone who comes into the covenant by faith. Book 3, which is Psalms 73 through 89, corresponding to Leviticus, brings forth a crisis. We have a crisis in Book 3 brings out this question, have God's promises to David failed? The people are going to be exiled. This is pretty clear in the book 3. Why are the people going to be exiled? Well, because of God's judgment on their sin. So what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to cling to hope, looking ahead to the heavenly kingdom and not the earthly kingdom. Then book 4, which is Psalms 90 through 106, corresponding to Numbers, brings back the hope that was absent in book 3. 
It reminds that even if the promises of David appear to have failed, everything that we know about God from the past proves that his promises never fail, even if they appear to have. Book 4 ends with four psalms of praise, leading us into the major focus of Book 5. The major focus of Book 5 is worship God because of his restoration his completion, and his victory. So book five, which is kind of more of the focus today because that's where the Psalms of Ascent are, book five contains Psalms 107 through 150 corresponding to Deuteronomy. This opens with singing about restoration, completion, and victory in the sanctuary with a call to worship in Psalm 107. Psalm 108 through 110 praises David's Lord as prophet, priest, and king. Psalms 113 through 118 are called the Egyptian Hallel. Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise. These were these psalms were sung at the at the major feast celebration of the Jewish holidays, but they were sung especially during Passover. Then you got Psalm 119, which is kind of directly in the middle of Book Five. It's a famous sustained praise of the law of God. You ever read Psalm 119? Every verse, all 176 of them, are praising the law of God. And then immediately following this psalm is our subject matter for the next ten weeks, the Psalms of Ascent. Talk about these more in just a second. After the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 138 through 145 give the fully restored hope of victory in David's throne. And then finally in Psalms 146 through 150, we have restoration, completion, and victory fully accomplished for all eternity. And I love the way the way uh, Dirk concludes this here, his quote right here in the kind of the corner right there. It says, a mega doxology of worship in the cosmic sanctuary. Man, it's good good phrasing, huh? Mega doxology of worship in the cosmic sanctuary. So that's how the Psalter ends in 146 through 150. So with that whole overview of the entire Psalter, let's move, kind of focus in more to where we're going to be in the next next few weeks in the Psalms of Ascent. So if you don't know why these are called the Psalms of Ascent, it's because in each of the 15 Psalms of 120 through 134, the title contains the words, A Song of Ascents. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the meaning of this title in just a moment. Song of Ascents. Ten of these are anonymous. Four were written by David. And included in these is one of the two Psalms in the Psalter that's written by Solomon. As far as the types go, they encompass quite a wide variety of genres as far as psalm variety goes. They include individual and corporate laments, songs of confidence, thanksgiving hymns, a song of celebration for Zion, tame wisdom psalms, a royal psalm, and a liturgical psalm. So quite a wide variety of genres here. So why then were they collected together into this group of 15? Now if you're convinced by what... Dirk was saying, then the Psalms were collected intentionally, and I think that's very clear by now. The Psalms were collected intentionally. So why were these collected into this specific group of 15? Back to the title again, the Songs of Ascent. So then, what is meant by this word ascent? There's actually four views here, and I'm going give to give them all to you. Four views as to what the word is, means, ascent. And I think they all can be 
pretty legitimately argue, this, is, this isn't like a, a separation between liberal theologians and conservative ones or anything like that. All of these, I think, have some grounding. So the first interpretation, but this is, this is kind of the weakest one, weakest one on its own, in my opinion. The first interpretation of the word ascent. This view says that the Psalms, the Psalms themselves, contain poetic elements both within the individual psalms themselves and between the whole collection of 15 that provide a series of steps that makes each thought rise above the previous thought. So you're ascending as you're in the individual psalms themselves. So you have Psalm 120 starting in a low spot, and by the end of the psalm, you're rising, and you're at an ascent by the end of the psalm. And then pulling out in scope, you'd have Psalm 120 starting low, And then by the time you get to Psalm 134, you end up high. So you're stepping, and then you're stepping, and you're stepping. And by the end of all of the Psalms of Ascent, you're even higher than you were at the highest point of Psalm 120. As a general framework, this kind of works. uh, But there are some instances where there's some emotional and spiritual rising and falling, both within the individual Psalms themselves and across some Psalms. So, but... It kind of works as a general general framework because Psalm 134 definitely ends in a higher place than Psalm 121. All right, so that's the first view. Second view. At the temple in Jerusalem, there were 15 steps that led from one quarter of the temple to the other quarter of the temple. So you see where I'm going with this. There's 15 steps, there's 15 psalms here. Each psalm would be sung on each corresponding step. So starting at the first step, you have the low point of Psalm 120. And by the time you finish Psalm 134, the worshiper has reached the height of the temple or to the next court. This view has a little bit of weight behind it because in a few passages, the same Hebrew word, ma'alah, that is translated as sense in these psalms is translated steps in other places. So immediately after the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, God gives a command about altars. Verse 26, he says, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So the word is also, that word step, step there in Exodus 20, 26, is the same Hebrew word as in songs of, that's translated as sense there. Ma'awah. Same thing in 1 Kings chapter 10, when it describes Solomon's throne that he's made for himself. Or in Nehemiah 12, 37, it says, At the fountain gate, they went straight up before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. So in this verse, the Hebrew word occurs twice. Malah is there twice. One time it's translated stairs, at least in the ESV. It's translated stairs. And the other time it's translated ascent. So I do think there's... There's a legitimate argument that can be made here for this theory that these songs were sung on each step of ascent into the temple. That's the second view. Third view. The psalms were written to be sung by those returning from exile back to Jerusalem. And this view has some support due to the collection of the psalms' location in the whole book of psalms that we just went over. So remember, book 5 of the Psalter has a comparison to Deuteronomy. Mention that, book 5, comparison to Deuteronomy. So what's the, what's the context of the book of Deuteronomy here? 
It's Deuteronomy is instructions for the people right before they enter the land of Canaan. Remember, they've come right up to the edge of Canaan, and Moses gives this great discourse that is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, and so they got all these instructions before they come into the land of Canaan. So these songs, the songs of ascent, kind of function in the same way. There are these songs that are be that the people are going to be singing as they're coming back into the land after they have been exiled. So support for this comes from Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'm going to turn there real quick. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Ezra 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Look at verse 3. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And then down in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. So you've got the two words there. You have the idea of the exiles going up or ascending back into the land from their period of exile. And be honest, I, I can see, I can see a, a lot of legitimacy for, for this view, the exiles coming back into the land, and these are the songs that they would be sing, singing as they came back from their exile, especially from Babylon, but really anywhere that they were exiled. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. And I could just be reading too much into this, but I don't think so. And I say that because I recently preached a sermon at a, a church back in my hometown on this, this particular chapter, and it was fresh in my mind, but it, it, to me it makes a lot of sense. So Isaiah 35, this is Isaiah's prophecy of a homecoming. We're going to read the whole chapter here. Isaiah 35. This is after he's... he's prophesying this to them to give them hope. He's already told them they're going to be exiled. The people don't get exiled until after Isaiah dies. But he's told them they're going to be exiled, and he tells them this is their hope for when they return. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon... They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hand and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. 
No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So this is the hope that's being communicated by God through Isaiah to those who would return to the land. God is going to restore the land to its beauty. He's going to heal the sick, both the physically and the emotionally sick. He's going to provide the highway that leads back to the land, and the name of this highway is the Way of Holiness. This is, at its face, an entrance back into the physical land of Canaan, but ultimately it's an entrance into the spiritual promised land that's given through the power of the Holy Spirit. So why is that? It's because in verse 8 it tells us that the unclean will not be allowed in. Only the redeemed are going to be allowed to enter on the way of holiness. That's the way you get into the promised land. You have to be cleaned on the way of holiness by the power of the Spirit. And then you get that wonderful hope presented in verse 10. I'm going to read that again because it's, it's so, so wonderful. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. No sorrow. Gladness and joy. Everlasting joy is going to be on the heads of the redeemed. But for our purposes, the most important word right here is how are they going to enter into Zion? Remember, this is both physical Zion when they return, and it's pointing more towards spiritual Zion. How they're going to return? They're going to return with singing. On the way of holiness, they're going to be singing. So what would they be singing? Maybe these songs. Maybe they're going to be singing these songs that we're going to be studying over these next few weeks. So that's the third view. Fourth view. And this is the most prominent view held today. Most people hold this view, and I, I do too. Um, but I actually hold all the other ones, so I'll try to tie them back together in just a minute. Um, this is the fourth view, most prominent view. This view maintains that these songs were sung by those who were making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship on the feast days. In Deuteronomy 16.16, 16, this is what it says. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Remember, this is a command. This is not a suggestion to the males in Israel. This is a command. Three times a year, so I forget the dates for these things. Uh, May, middle of summer, and no, March, early summer and September. Is that right? How? Okay. March, early summer, early summer and September. So three times a year, the males, remember, everybody walks. Maybe some rich people might have a camel or something. But everybody walks, and three times a year, all the males have to walk to Jerusalem for these feast days. And these were the songs that they would be singing. So it says here, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord at the place that He will choose. Remember, at this time, God had not chosen Jerusalem for where the, the temple is going to be. But He's going to choose Jerusalem later. So these men, and as a side note... Any women or children that went with them, because they weren't prohibited from going, it was commanded that all the males go, but the women and children were allowed to go too. You see that later, especially when Jesus' parents go. And Jesus himself. <clears throat> so these men, they're going to be singing these psalms of ascent as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem 
from their various homes in the Promised Land. They're going up to Jerusalem, and then Mount Zion's on a hill in Jerusalem, so they're going up not just to Jerusalem, but also to Mount Zion, and they're going to be singing these psalms of ascent as they're going. So to bring it into a modern analogy, these songs were the playlist for the road trip to Jerusalem. Yeah. I like a good road trip. Well, before I had kids, I liked a good road trip. It's much tougher with kids. And a very important part of that is the playlist for the road trip here. And this is, I mean, God has given them their own playlist for their road trip to Jerusalem. So that's, that's good. And these psalms, they would, they would also serve this, this unifying purpose. I mean, even in our secular sense, if the whole car is singing along with whatever you're driving to, it's you know, a sense of unity and bonding that's there. And this, these psalms serve the same purpose here. All the people are going to be singing them as they're going up to worship, and they're going to be, the psalms are going to be unifying them together. It's just you know, it's great how God designed this. It's like He knew what we needed. Right? Their voices are going to join together while they traveled. And God is going to be preparing them to worship as one body. So these songs were the God-given songs to be sung on the way to worship Him at the annual festivals that He had commanded to be worshipped at. So I already hinted at this. I've given you these four views. And my personal opinion is that I, I think all four of these can actually be held at the same time. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. I don't see any reason why they have to be mutually exclusive. These songs could have been sung by both those who came to worship at the annual festivals and by those who were returning from exile much later. Both of those who work. And once they got there, couldn't they be repeated on each of the 15 steps as they're going up into the temple? Yeah. It's a long journey. They can sing all the songs, and once they get there, they sing all the songs again as they're ascending. And can't there be some ascending poetic arrangements within these songs? Yeah, definitely. So no, no one view here really excludes any of the other views. I think they all work. They all work. And they're all useful to us as 21st century Christians. We can enjoy the Psalms for their poetic forms and arrangements. We can sing them as we come into our New Testament temple to worship. Sing these. And we're going to in the next couple weeks. We can view ourselves as the covenant people of God that are currently in exile and we're making our way back to the promised land to be in the full presence of God. And we can definitely sing them as pilgrims traveling through this life, both physically and spiritually, on our way to worship at the place and time that God has commanded us to worship, Lord's Day, that directly corresponds to why we're here today. We, depending on the way that you look at it, are either ending our weekly pilgrimage or beginning our weekly pilgrimage, maybe even both, by worshiping God in the way that He has commanded. The same thing that we're seeing here, we've been talking about. The major theme here within these songs of ascent are a pilgrimage or a journey. Especially if you go on those second and I mean those uh, third and fourth views here. That's the what it's talking about. It's a pilgrimage three times a year to Jerusalem or a journey back to the promised land from exile. Because the Christian life is indeed a journey. It relates to us too. It's a pilgrimage. It's a journey. Ups and downs. Peaks and valleys. To quote uh, Derek Thomas, this is what he says. He says, Think, for example, of how Christians in the early church were referred to as followers of the way or Bunyan's classic treatment of the Christian life and Pilgrim's progress. In the Psalms of Ascent, we discover both the heights and the depths of God's ways with us. From the distress of the opening psalm in 120 
to the Lord's blessing His people in the final Psalm of 134. The Christian life is like that. It has ups and it has downs. It has moments of bitterness and joy, moments of sadness and elation. So, it's my intention during this study for these songs to be both devotional and doxological. So devotional in the sense that it makes us introspect on ourselves, and doxological in the sense that it makes us praise God. They can be used to remind us of our joy in the covenant Lord and remind us of the new Jerusalem that we're looking forward to. Because what were they looking forward to on this journey? They were looking forward to making it to Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And in this life, what are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to being in the new Jerusalem and the new Mount Zion. They can be devotional in that way and doxological in our praise to God whenever we're thinking about our future. All this is the journey of the Christian life. And I'm going to read a, an, about a one-page extended passage from this book. This is called, it's called Voyage of Discovery. It's a devotional book by Derek Thomas. It's focused on the Psalms of Ascent. I'm going to be using it quite a bit through this study. It's called The Voyage of Discovery, The Ups and Downs of the Christian Life by Derek Thomas. So here's what he said when talking about the pilgrimage and the devotional aspect of these. Consider, for example, Christian hymns. Many Christians have found that meditating on well-known hymns has a peculiar and distinct advantage for the spiritual life. Many hymns, and Psalms too, deal particularly with what Richard Baxter calls the diseases and distempers of the soul. They're especially useful in addressing the causes of spiritual declension. The Psalms of Ascent function in the same way. Whether the various theories about their compilation have any truth, they do appear to possess a particular quality about them that urges the reader forward and upward from the doldrums of Meshach, which is Psalm 120, verse 5, to the beauty and heights of worship in Jerusalem, Psalm 122, 2, and to the enjoyment of the presence of God in Psalm 134. Along the way, we find them contemplating the dangers as they ascend towards the hills of Zion in Psalm 121, Later, upon beholding the beauty of Jerusalem, the writer of Psalm 125 bursts into a song of assurance. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. The next psalm in the series finds him recalling the power demonstrated in the release that they had known from captivity. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like strings in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Just as there is geographical progress discernible, So there are valuable lessons to learn. Lessons about suffering and its place within the pilgrimage that leads into the eternal city. In Psalm 129 it says, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Then the suffering goes even deeper in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Learning this lesson comes closest to what Paul meant when he wrote that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings in 2 Corinthians. Participating in these sufferings is at the heart of our pilgrimage to heaven. Calvin wrote, by the way, of commentary on a similar passage in 1 Peter, the church of Christ has been from the beginning so constituted that the cross has been the way to victory and and death a passage into life. The secret learned is to wait for the Lord, That's Psalm 130. So those are some of the things that we're going to be encountering. We're going to be encountering the, the valleys and the peaks of the Christian life all along this journey that we have.
So this, that's part of the devotional aspects that we're going to be going through to help us grow, to give us hope. We're also going to be looking at them with the dox, doxology in mind. So praise, praise to God in mind. David sings in Psalm 127, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David knew the joys of worship in God's house. And we should know these joys even more fully realized than David did. What's even more amazing here is that if that last theory holds true, these are the very songs that Jesus sang as he approached Jerusalem for the feast. When Jesus was a boy, Luke records this in Luke 2, verses 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. There they go. Their annual feast, traveling at the Feast of Passover, Jesus' parents went up to Jerusalem. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, or they ascended, according to custom. And what were they singing when they, when they ascended? If that last year theory holds true, they're going to be singing the very songs that we're going to be looking at. The very songs that we're going to be singing in the next couple of weeks. So we're singing the same songs that Jesus sang. It's inspiring. Or... As another proof text, when Jesus and his disciples are going to Jerusalem just before his crucifixion, remember this would have been right before Passover, Luke, again, chapter 19, verse 28 says, this is how he begins his account of Jesus' triumphant entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up, or ascending, to Jerusalem. So when we recite, when we read, when we sing these songs... We're singing the very songs that Jesus would have been singing on his way to worship in the temple and on the way to be crucified. Singing these songs began to orient the worshipers to the correct frame of mind to go into the temple and to worship God. They were sort of opening act for the main events at the temple. They set the mood, they rearranged their hearts to be pointed more towards God, to go for their, their full worship. So this finally brings me to why I really wanted to spend this Sunday School series on the Psalms of Ascent. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this about my Sunday School lessons, but I write them to try to set the stage for the primary worship service. To get our hearts focused even before the moment of reflection and the call, call to worship. I see Sunday School as kind of, a, of an opening act. If you, ever, if you ever go to a concert, there's typically an opener. Or maybe multiple openers. But this is, they come on before the headliner takes the stage, and it's really, you know, it's to warm up the crowd, get them in the mood for the main show. And I, I realize this is a very poor analogy. I realize that. <laughs> Terrible. It's because, you know, a commissioned worship service of our Lord and Savior really pales in comparison to any secular show you could possibly think about. But Sunday school is kind of, it, it can serve the same, same purpose here. It can kind of feel like an opener for a concert. It's kind of, Get the, the worshipful juices flowing, for lack of a better term, you know? You can use this as a, really a transition time for the hustle to get here. So it, it, don't lie, there is always a hustle to get to church on time, right? So if you're hustling straight into the worship service, it's not the same as if you've had this, you know, 45 minutes or an hour or so beforehand. 
So we can use this to help focus our minds. It can move, help move our hearts in the direction for worship. Prepare our hearts for worship. And this was exactly the same purpose as the Psalms of Ascent. They were the opening act that the people participated in on their way to the worship service at the temple sanctuary. The people's hearts would begin to be lifted up as they made their way from wherever they came from, wherever they came from to Jerusalem, whether they came from from Vicksburg or Moselle or Flora or Madison or wherever they came from. Same way. Sunday school or the Psalms of Ascent specifically right now, they can serve as the same, you know, to reorient us, to get us settled down from our hustle of getting here, to get us prepared for the worship service. So that's what I, I want us to focus on as we're going to make this journey from our lands each and every Sunday morning for the next 10 or 11 weeks. We can use these psalms to focus ourselves on really what is the crescendo of this day and this week, which is worshiping our covenant God and our Lord and Savior. So let's prepare our hearts to worship Him.